The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. 25 years ago today, Jack Kent Cook passed away at the age of 84 years old. This was the obituary written by R.H. Melton and Richard Justice in the Washington Post the following day, Monday, April 7th. Washington Redskins owner Jack Kent Cooke, who built the NFL franchise into a three-time Super Bowl champion and was nearing completion of a monumental new stadium in suburban Maryland, died yesterday after suffering a heart attack at his home in northwest Washington. He was 84. Cook, who had a long history of heart and respiratory problems, was pronounced dead at George Washington University Hospital at 12.09 p.m. after collapsing in his library yesterday morning, said Robert Chesser, the chief of the hospital's emergency room, who was on duty at the time. Uh, And then there's a description of him not responding to medical treatment, etc. And then uh, a paragraph uh, about... Cook being at the hospital um, where he passed away, uh, uh, being attended to by his wife at the time, Marlene Romalo Cook, his son, John Kent Cook, his daughter-in-law, and his grandson. Uh, Then uh, I pick it up a little bit further down in the article. Redskins officials and Cook aides said they expected little disruption in overall management of the team or the final phases of the $175 million, 78,600-seat stadium in Landover, just inside the Capitol Beltway in PG County. John Kent Cook, the team president, has told associates that he intends to keep the Redskins in the family and assume control of day-to-day operations. The younger cook, who has held wide-ranging authority over the team for the past several years, declined to comment yesterday uh, and instructed his staff and all coaches to refrain from publicly discussing his father's death. In a region whose public figures often tend toward the bland, the elder cook was anything but. A natty, silver-haired business mogul who suffered fools and uncooperative politicos badly. He was a contradictory figure, a big ego in a diminutive diminutive body, a dealmaker who got his way by bullying, cajoling, and caressing, sometimes all at once. As word of Cook's death spread, there was an outpouring of testimonials from the White House and elected leaders across the Washington area, including local jurisdictions where Cook had tried unsuccessfully for 10 years to find a new home for his beloved team. That search, which ended two years ago with an agreement on the Landover site, was emblematic of Cook. His exchanges with local leaders were oversized and dramatic. In public with then-Virginia Governor Doug Wilder, he was at his courtly best. In private with then-D.C. Mayor Sharon Pratt Kelly, he could be overbearing and and at his chauvinistic worst. So long as I agreed with him, he was very pleasant, recalled former Maryland Governor William Donald Schaefer. There is no negotiating. It's his way only. I'm Jack Kent Cook. This is the way it's going to be, closed quote. Maryland Senate President um, uh, Thomas V. Mike Miller Jr., 
who also negotiated with Cook, recalled the owner's sizable ego. Miller said he once declined an invitation to sit in Cook's exclusive box in RFK Stadium, but promised to look up at Cook from his own end zone seats. There's probably 40,000 people who who look up to you, Miller recalled telling Cook. Cook replied, no, all 58,000 look up. I'm part of the show, closed quote. Wilder, the governor of Virginia, said yes, uh, uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, said yesterday it was sad that Cook did not live long enough to see his dream come to fruition in Landover. He used to kid with me a lot and say, look, I'm not interested in a memorial stadium. I want to see something. Wilder said. Virginia Governor George Allen, whose father once coached the Redskins, described Cook yesterday as an extraordinary lion in the world of business and professional sports, an unequaled competitor. Joe Gibbs, who coached all three of Cook's Super Bowl champion teams yesterday, credited Cook with making him a professional head coach for the first time 16 years ago. Quote, I was 40 years old and no one took a chance on me, Gibbs said yesterday from Texas Motor Speedway in Fort Worth, where the racing team he owns was competing in the Interstate Batteries 500. That showed the kind of guts he had. He gambled and went with me, a nobody. Before his uh, health began to fail, Cook was a regular at Redskin Park, the team's practice facility in Ashburn. He frequently drove his black BMW into, into his reserved spot, then accompanied his spaniel Coco, drove a golf cart down to the field area to watch the team practice. He would sit through bitterly cold days in sweltering heat, commenting on virtually every play and every player. He would chide GM uh, Charlie Casserly for draft choices that displeased him and commented compliment him on high performance players. Once when a coach asked, what are your dreams? Mr. Cook, the owner snapped, I don't dream. I do. Um, and then it goes on to talk about, um, him as a businessman, him, uh, as a local socialite, uh, etc. Um, and then there is this final, um, uh, part of uh, of of the um, of the obituary during a 1992 interview after announcing plans to build his new stadium in Alexandria Cook touched briefly on his own mortality a subject he customarily avoided I want to be buried in a burgundy and gold coffin he said and when I'm gone someone named Cook is going to own the team and when he's gone someone else named Cook is going to run the team Also that day, he had telephoned Gibbs and told him, Joe, be honest with me. What are our prospects for this season? Gibbs said he felt good about the Redskins' chances of winning a second straight Super Bowl. Well, Joe, Cook said, you know what I want, three in a row. Uh, Well, they never did get three in a row. And in 1992, they made the playoffs and they lost in the divisional round to the 49ers. I thought that last part in particular of the obit, I want to be buried in, in a burgundy and gold coffin, and when I'm gone, someone named Cook is going to own the team, and when he's gone, someone else named Cook is going to run the team. I'm sure you meant to say own the team. So, Jack Ken Cook left this earth 25 years ago today. You could say for fans of the team, it was the day the music died. You know, even though we didn't know it on that day, we didn't know that his son wouldn't be left with an easy way to keep the team. We didn't know that the team would be purchased by Dan Snyder, leading to a 22-year run of losing and embarrassment that if Mr. Cook has been watching all along from above, I'm sure he has said many a time, Daniel, my boy, you've ruined a good thing. Uh, Please, Daniel, get on your boat, sail away. And sell the team. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, so many of you have no clue what this was like back then. Uh, it, it just, it's been so long now. Generations, plural, have missed out on the one thing more than anything else that for such a long period of time unified this city more than anything else. I'm sure if Mr. Cook, and I will refer to him as Mr. Cook, much the elder back then than any of us. Mr. Cook knew, if he knew how much 
this would unravel after his death, he would have changed the way that he had things set up to make it easier for his son to buy the team because it wasn't easy. You know, whether he didn't want John to own the team, although the obituary, you know, in that line says that he did, or maybe he just didn't know how much the team would be worth on the open market. And there is some information that's been written over the years about that. But the bottom line is he messed it up. You know, Cook's major goal goal upon his death had little to do with the football team. You know, he created the Jack Kent Cook Foundation with 90% of the team's eventual sale targeted to go to that foundation, which would fund academic college things like research and scholarships. Maybe he thought John would have enough money himself to buy the team or enough to buy a majority of the team and raise the, uh, the rest of the money through investors. But I read this story from the New York Times from, 10, from the 10-year anniversary of Cook's death. Cook thought that the team would sell in his last years of life. He thought the team would be worth between $200 and $300 million dollars a price that he thought John could have made work and could have afforded, whether it was with his own money or with his own money and other money borrowed from minority investors. But the league was really on this meteoric rise at the time. There were new TV de- deals in the, in the offing, and there, was, there were new stadiums like the new stadium in Landover. And the team sold for $800 million in 1999. Reports um, it were on the 10-year anniversary of, uh, of Cook's death in, in the New York Times story that I read that the reports were that Cook was willing to go as high as $500 million, but once it started going north of $500 million, it was out of his range. So um, it was Cook's foundation uh, where the bulk of the $800 million sale to Dan Snyder and company, um, most of that money went to the Jack Kent Cook Foundation, which has benefited students in need uh, of financial help to go to college for years. Uh, they have been the big winners uh, in the sale of the team back in 1999. Education was the real winner. Uh, John Kent Cook and the rest of us, Um, were the losers in all of this. He didn't see it coming, I don't think, um, and perhaps would have created uh, an easier path for his son to own the team, for the team to stay in the family, if he had known how expensive his team was going to sell for. We didn't know it 25 years ago when he breathed uh, his last breath that the franchise was doing the same uh, in so many ways. Uh, Before we get to our next segment on the show, which will include some football talk, including a very impressive performance by a corner at LSU's Pro Day, I want you to listen to something that I found on YouTube. This is following Super Bowl XXII, the Doug Williams you know, 35-point second quarter, 42-10 to 10 win over Denver. This is the post game with Keith Jackson for ABC and Pete Rozelle, the commissioner at the time, presenting the Lombardi Trophy to Jack Kent Cook. I think you'll enjoy this. Commissioner Pete Rozelle holding the object of the Washington Redskins' affection, the Vince Lombardi Trophy. Well, here we have the leader of our new America's team, owner Jack Kent Cook. And Jack, obviously, was a similar performance by the Redskins. That second quarter, incidentally, most valuable player, Doug Williams, scored more points. He, he was the main, the main driving force, of course, in the second quarter than we ever scored in one quarter in the 68-year postseason history of the National Football League. Hail the Redskins. I tell you, Pete, it's a tribute not only to a black quarterback, but to a very great quarterback. And we mustn't forget the Ricky Sanderses and all the rest of the great performances, the Jimmy Smiths and so on. All I can say is that I'm terribly proud to have won two out of three Super Bowls. And the entire credit goes to Joe Gibbs, to Bobby Beathard, the assistant coaching staff, and a magnificent band of football players. Hope to be in a Super Bowl next year. Well, I know the commissioner doesn't really fall in love with that word dynasty, Jack, but you guys ain't doing bad two out of three in the 80s. I hope that there is the beginning of a dynasty here, and I have every reason to believe that perhaps we may suspect one. Thank you, Keith. 
Well, you have had your NBA champions. You've had your NFL champions. Uh, I mean, my gosh, how, how long can this go on? Well, it depends on how long I'm going to live, I think. I've got another 25 years, perhaps, in me, and I hope that we have many more championships for Washington. There's one thing before we bring in Joe Gibbs that I want you to have some mention of, and that is the man who owns a ball club who had the courage to go to his checkbook and pay $475,000 for a backup quarterback. It was very easy to do because it was at the essence. It was the essence of wanting to win so badly. Had it been eight hundred and seventy-five thousand or a million eight hundred and seventy-five thousand, I would have said the same thing to Joe. But I would have said it quite a less, a little bit reluctantly. But nevertheless, I would have said it. Go ahead, Joe, and get him. It's the greatest thing that's happened to us to have Doug here. He's coming over here. He's a good friend of mine. He's a good friend of everybody on the club, and he's a real leader. The best leader on the club is my dear friend, Joe Gibbs, our head coach. Thank you, Jack. Congratulations to you. Joe? We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shea Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dominic. Dominic Toretto, I live my life a quarter mile at a time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina wine mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Keep those reviews and ratings coming, especially on Apple, Spotify. Subscribe um, if you don't mind. The podcast doesn't cost you a thing. But definitely, if you haven't rated or reviewed us on Apple or Spotify, take 30 seconds and do it. The reviews have been great to read. This one from Galubo. Um, huge fan of Kevin and Tom since they had the radio show. Having the opportunity of having them in podcast form is priceless. I'm deployed in Pakistan for the last two years, and I don't miss an episode. Uh, thank you so much. It's really amazing to me. I, I, I've mentioned this before, I believe, but more than 50% of our podcast audience is from outside uh, the DMV, and many from outside the U.S., always interesting to go through the list of countries where some of the downloads and listens are coming from. Uh, we have a lot of listeners in the U.K. in particular, um, and uh, and it's, it's great because I, I, I do know that... Um, that the UK has a lot of Washington football team fans because they were one of the first games uh, that the Brits in particular were able to watch. Uh, I think Super Bowl 17 was the first live NFL game televised uh, in London. I think that's true. And Washington, you know, then went over a few years later to, to play a preseason game uh, in London against the 49ers. 
So anyway, thank you. Also, this from Elaine in Fairfax. Elaine writes, Kevin and Tom are a great team. They make me laugh out loud, which frequently happens when I'm working out at the gym. When you made your list of girls next door, though, boys, you left out Meg Ryan. Yeah, that's a great call. Meg Ryan, total girl next door uh, looks. I had a lot of you that reached out via Twitter that just were blown away that I couldn't immediately come up with Alicia Cuthbert's name in the movie A Girl Next Door. I came up with it. It took me about 30 seconds. Uh, my good friend Cowboy Clay immediately called me after that podcast and said, how, how could you not, how could that not just roll off your tongue, uh, Alicia Cuthbert's name? She is, you know, iconic for her role in Girl Next Door. Well, I, I you know, I got the Canadian part. I knew she was married to a hockey player. And then eventually um, it came to me. Um, yeah, that was fun last week. Uh, Tommy, by the way, oh, I should probably, well, I, I'm going to mention this. Follow him on Twitter, because apparently this Disney trip is a disaster for him. Uh, I did text him the other day, and I just said, how's Disney going? Um, And he said, this is how it's going. And he sent me the room trashing scene from Citizen Kane. So he's not doing very well. I told him to get the fast passes, uh, the fast passes so he didn't have to wait in line. You know, you can't be a rookie at Disney um, and really enjoy it that first time. If you go there unprepared, especially during spring break, it can be a nightmare. I have a feeling um, he's having um, a nightmare of a time uh, right now. Um, All right. uh, 26 Catch writes, must listen for Commanders fans. Really enjoy the show since I'm not living in the DMV. My favorite shows are usually with Tom and Cooley. Great insight. Uh, on my beloved dysfunctional franchise. Love how Duke lives rent-free in Terps fans' heads to this day, despite Maryland running from the ACC to play lower competition. Trust me, uh, as Duke fans, uh, us Duke fans don't even think about the Terps. Let's go, Duke. Um, Okay, whatever. Uh, So, uh, I wanted to start the show with um, this email that I got from Ren. Ren emailed me um, through our website and he wrote uh, an email that that essentially said, thank you for your thoughts on the Warren Sharp ranking of Washington's schedule being so easy. It makes a lot of sense that if Washington's got an easy schedule, well then so do the other teams in the division. And I went through that the other day pointing out that you know you basically play the same schedule with the exception of three games. And the Eagles have the third easiest schedule. The Cowboys have the sixth easiest schedule. Uh, and the Giants have the eighth easiest schedule. So while you know the schedule, the way he determined schedule strength, I actually liked versus with the way many people do it, which is last year's records. He did it based off of the odds makers over under. Uh, win totals for the upcoming season. I still think the schedule game is dangerous, but again, if your schedule's easy, it pretty much means the other teams in your division have an easy schedule as well. Um, And then he wrote the following to me. He said, last year you warned us that the defense might not be as great as everybody thinks it's going to be because of the quarterbacks that are lining up on the schedule, the schedule that you have typically in the past diminished in importance. Yes, but we just went through that. Um, And I went through that last year where I said, look, I'm not a big schedule guy. However, the positions that typically are least affected by, you know, mass injuries, quarterback, And so if you assume that you're going to play every single starting quarterback as it appears now on your schedule, that's a brutal schedule, you know, uh, versus the one you played the year before, which was against a lot of backups, a lot of third stringers, a lot of teams kind of fiddling around with the quarterback position because they didn't really have one. Obviously, Washington in 2020 benefited from Dak Prescott being injured in the division I still contend that if 
Prescott doesn't get injured in 2020. Dallas wins that division. Burrow got hurt, you know, in the first half of that game against Washington, or maybe it was early in the third quarter. I kind of forget now. So they got Ryan Finley in that game. You got a, a diminished Roethlisberger at that point with Pittsburgh on the verge of falling apart. You got Nick Mullins. You got um, uh, you know, uh, whoever was starting for Carolina that day, I can't even remember. Um, and then Philadelphia basically benched their starter to tank the game in the finale. So you had a lot of luck with respect to the quarterbacks that you played. And then last year, obviously, and we pointed this out as Ren did, you know, it was going to be Herbert. It was going to be Josh Allen, Matt Ryan, um, you know, uh, Mahomes, Rogers, Brady, Wilson, a car, Dak twice, and it was just going to be very difficult. So Ren, you know, points out that last year you correctly, you know, uh, said that the defense wasn't going to be, you know, it, may, it might be a good defense, which is what I said. He didn't say this. I'm inserting this. I did say I thought it would be a good defense, just that the results wouldn't be what they were the year before because of the teams they were facing. Well, Ren writes, well, this year, this is an easy quarterback lineup that they have. So what do you think about the defense coming up this year? Well, that that's the thing that I think is, you know, right now the biggest question mark. And, you know, I had John Kime on the podcast yesterday. If you missed it, I had John on. It was all football talk, no, you know, scandal talk, no defamation uh, lawsuit talk. And there's been no news actually today, which is a shocker. Not yet anyway. And, um, you know, John had interviewed Rivera and Rivera had talked about this season being the season where they need to ascend and they should ascend. Um, and he's really built up the expectations for year three. And I just look at this year as different than I looked at last year. I look at this year as a year without expectations, even though they added a better quarterback, a bigger upside quarterback. I understand that, even though I'm not, a, I, I was not a big fan of the trade. Um, but, uh, they're better at quarterback. They've got more upside at quarterback. Um, and, you know, if they're healthy on offense, they've got a chance to be better than they were last year on offense. But to me, the big question mark is what are they going to be defensively? Well, that's what Ren is pointing out. You know, maybe last year it wasn't just, you know, that the defense was awful. It was the teams they were playing. Well, some of that is true. But some of it is also that their best players didn't play well defensively. And then and then they got hurt. Um but in terms of the quarterbacks they face this year, you know, you get Dak twice, you get Jones twice, you know, if it is Jones, uh, they also signed uh, Tyrod Taylor and you get Jalen Hurts twice. And then you get, you know, the best quarterbacks on uh, on your schedule are Aaron Rodgers, Deshaun Watson maybe, depending on whether or not he's suspended. Um, when Cleveland shows up on the schedule, uh, you get Kirk Cousins for the first time back at FedEx Field, um, and you get Matt Ryan on the road. But yeah, after that, it's right now, whomever the starting quarterback will be in Atlanta, in Atlanta we think it's Marcus Mariota. Trevor Lawrence, we don't know what that means at this point. Ryan Tannehill. Uh, not exactly spectacular in their playoff loss, but Tannehill's a decent quarterback. Um, it could be with Cleveland that you're facing Baker Mayfield or somebody other than Deshaun Watson. Trey Lance or Jimmy G in San Francisco. Davis Mills in Houston. Jared Goff, Justin Fields in Detroit and Chicago. Yeah, it is a much different quarterback landscape competitively that they are scheduled to face this year than they did last year. It's still not like an easy quarterback lineup. You know, you're still going to get Prescott twice and, you know, Hurts a year later. And he played well at times last year, guys. I mean, that team was not supposed to be a playoff team. And Hurts played well enough uh, and was influential. Played terrible in the playoff game against Tampa. I, I will, I, I'll give you that. Um, but you have Rodgers and Cousins and Ryan and Watson and Tannehill. You know, all on the schedule. Um, it's you know, we don't know what Trey Lance is going to be. Uh, we'll see. But yes, on paper, going in certainly would appear uh, to be easier 
than last year's uh, incredible lineup of quarterbacks, at least uh, when the season began. You ended up playing last year, if you recall, Russell Wilson was compromised when you played Seattle. He played, but you know he still wasn't back to a hundred percent at that point. Um, you got, uh, but you did get Brady. You did get Rodgers. You did get Mahomes. Rodgers was a little bit banged up for that game. Um, you did get Mahomes. Uh, you did have to face Jameis Winston with New Orleans. He actually probably, well, he did. He had probably his best game of the year before he tore his ACL against Washington. You got a great performance from Josh Allen and Justin Herbert when you faced uh, those quarterbacks as well. Um, I wanted to mention that, you know, Washington is you know, attending uh, workout days, pro days. And one of the pro days today um, is at LSU. And Washington has a contingent down there at LSU's pro day. And cornerback Derek Stingley Jr., unofficial pro day numbers at LSU today, 43740, 38.5 vertical, 10-foot, 2-inch broad, all 32 teams in attendance for Derek Stingley and all the LSU uh, players on Pro Day. Washington, to me, has a need for corner. I'm still not sure about the Jackson acquisition from last year. I like Fuller. I thought St. Juice looked like a guy that has a chance to be a good player. But Washington needs a big-time corner. They do not have a great corner. Fuller's good. Jackson was good, had a good year at one, you know, had a really good year in Cincinnati two years ago now. Um, but if Stingley Jr. or if, you know, Gardner from Cincinnati are there at 11, Washington would have to seriously consider that. You know, even if, let's just say, Garrett Wilson or Chris Olave, the two receivers that they love, are there, uh, it would be amazing. But I've seen. I've seen Derek Stingley Jr. you know available at 11 in a lot of mocks. I've seen him gone before 11. I've seen him go, you know, the pick after Washington. Um but Stingley uh is you know, he he had some injuries at LSU, no doubt. You know, it it made kind of the performance at times a little bit inconsistent. Um but Derek Stingley Jr. has you know, has the speed, has the length, um, has the size at, you know, somewhere around 6'1 as a corner. Uh, they've got to consider Stingley Jr. if he's there. Um, that leads me to this, too. And I think we've talked about this already, but if we haven't, I'm just going to mention it real quickly. I think the draft for Washington is so interesting right now because, on one hand, it would be great if the quarterbacks are gone. By the time uh, Washington's on the clock at 11, because that pushes down receivers and potentially corners. Could even push down, as John Kime was hopeful of yesterday, a guy like Kyle Hamilton, safety out of Notre Dame. I doubt that'll happen. But if Pickett and Willis were to go, let's just say two to Detroit and six to Carolina, it's going to push some players down and give Washington a better chance at Drake London or Garrett Wilson or Chris Olave or potentially Gardner or or um, or Stingley Jr. as mentioned if they're looking for a corner. And then at the same time, if the quarterbacks don't go, then all of a sudden the teams below them in need of a quarterback, New Orleans, Pittsburgh would really be the first two, um, potentially jump up. Uh, to 11. Pittsburgh in particular may want to jump jump in front of New Orleans, who's got number 16 right now in that trade with Philadelphia. Um, and they may want to try to get in front of uh, New Orleans. And then all of a sudden, maybe 11 becomes a very valuable spot to move back and pick up a first next year and maybe replace the third that they gave up for Wentz this year. It's really we're, – we're three weeks away tomorrow night from the, the first round of the draft. Um, a, a real interesting draft in, in so many ways because of the major question marks surrounding the quarterbacks. And yet still several teams probably looking for one. When you go through the first round – you know, you could easily see Detroit wanting a quarterback. You could easily see Carolina wanting a quarterback. You know, the Giants are interesting with their two picks, you know, in the in the first seven. 
Uh, we're going to find out what the new group thinks, really, of of, of Daniel Jones. Um, Atlanta at eight now is in the market for a quarterback. Seattle's in the market for a quarterback. Um, and those are all the teams before you get to Washington. And then after Washington, you've got you know potentially New Orleans at 16 and Pittsburgh at 20. So Pittsburgh and New Orleans could have another trade partner after Washington. In many ways, I think Washington really has to – you know, play up the fact that they could still go quarterback so that there is a chance somebody wants to trade up in, you know, in front of them to take a quarterback, which pushes maybe a good player to them, or is willing to trade into their their spot for them. Uh, Derek Stingley Jr., though, pretty impressive pro day based on what I've seen tweeted out uh, today. It's only a kick. A jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Tomorrow is opening day, the Nats and Mets, weather permitting, uh, the first of a four-game set uh, at Nats Park. Um, We will talk more about the Nats season tomorrow on the show. But today, I welcome onto the podcast Michael Ortman. Michael has a book out called Opening Day, 50 for 50. You can get it anywhere uh, you get a book. Um, And it's about his 50-year run of going to opening day games from 1970 through the 2019 season opener. Of course, 2020, we had a pandemic. Um, And it took him from his hometown, which is here, Washington, D.C., and RFK Stadium with the Senators, to Baltimore, to Chicago, back to Baltimore, and then ultimately back to uh, our fair uh, town of Washington, D.C. Three cities, six ballparks, five home teams, 50 opening days. So I'm going to um, I'm gonna guess that when you went to your first opening day in 1970, you didn't think it would be a run of 50 in a row that would end in a book. That's for sure. It was a cold and miserable day at RFK Stadium, but Dad pulled me out of school early to go watch the Senators play the Tigers and uh... – I guess now we look back, the rest is history. Yeah, so I'm from here, and I'm just barely old enough to remember, Mike, my father taking me to Senators games at RFK Stadium. In fact, the, the one I've got two memories. One is watching Denny McLean pitch his first game as a Washington Senator after, after trade brought him to D.C. The other one was walking out of RFK on one summer night and not being able to find my uh, father's car, our, our family car, which had been <laughs> stolen. Um, uh, so those are the two memories of Senators games. Um, but it sounds so I, I'd ask you, in 1970, when you started this, how old were you? I was nine. You were nine. The, uh, the previous summer, the previous summer, the Senators had a winning record under Ted Williams. And my parents took me and some friends to my ninth birthday party, August 9th, 1969. I'll never forget it. There's even a, a picture on our website. It was autograph day. And Frank Howard hit a baseball further than this little boy could have imagined. And the Senators played the, the Seattle Pilots that day. Um, and I was, I was hooked. My dad wasn't much of a baseball fan. He was a big event fan. But taking me to opening day, in his mind, opening day was a big event. The president would be there, et cetera. Um, that would be fun. And, and we had a big age gap between us. But that was kind of his way of connecting with me. And uh, we do tell, tell a pretty funny story about my dad in the very first chapter of the book to kind of introduce everyone to him. Um, but that's how it all got started, 69, 70. And then that opening day in 71, you just talked about Denny McLean. He pitched, I guess, the second or third game of the season. Dick Bosman was the 
opening day starter in 71, but Kurt Flood was the opening day center fielder. Right. And we used that, that year to kind of start the story of the journey to free agency that Kurt Flood really lit the, it was the spark that lit the fuse that ultimately turned into what we now have as these big contracts. Yeah, he was, um, and a very controversial figure of the day because of it. So back to the first game. So you, it was mm-hmm. a, it, it, opening days back then at RFK, which, by the way, there were only two of them because they moved after the 71 season. Um, but I'm interested in those first two, and and I, I will get a copy of the book and certainly read through it, and I'll be very interested to see about those first two days. So uh, was Nixon there for both of those opening days? He was there for the first one, but he didn't show up until the fifth inning. Uh, of, the, <laughs> so of, the, he delegated, of the first one? He was busy at the office, shall we say. There okay. was a procedural vote in the Senate that day, and he needed to stay back for it. I think some of his political colleagues warned him, says, Mr. President, we need the vice president available in case there's a tie. Not you, but okay. So Agnew so was Agnew there. Didn't get the, he, did, he didn't get the job either because he literally needed to be on standby to break a tie vote if needed. Okay. It had to do with it was a procedural vote to fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Yep. So Nixon delegates the first pitch ceremony to his son-in-law, David Eisenhower. Oh, sure. And, 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 and Pat was there, and et cetera. And so Nixon shows up late, but he did make it to the game. What were opening day crowds like for the Senators? You know, the 69 season is a very memorable season with Ted Williams managing and and the Senators having a winning season for the first time in forever. Um, was, was opening day at, at a stadium that, you know, when you go back, and I've done this before, and you look for the, uh, you know, reasons uh, that Short moved the team to Texas – you know, attendance was certainly one of them, and we were coming off the 68 riots, and there were a lot of reasons for why attendance was bad, including the team wasn't very good, but it was good in 69. But what were the crowds like for opening day? Were they sold out? Yes. Opening day uh, was a different event. It wasn't just another regular season game, and it still is to this day. There are many cities where the largest crowd of the year, or close to it anyway, is opening day. And right. the Washington Senators in those days was no different. Uh, Fans camped out overnight to buy the last 4,000 tickets for that first opening day of my streak. I don't know how my dad got tickets. I just don't remember. But that's how popular opening day was. And remember, since 1910, the president of the United States was usually throwing in a pitch. And we weren't as partisan a nation at the time as we are now. And so just being there for the president, didn't matter what side of the aisle he was on, was just a big deal. Um, and, and that's part of what made it so special. Were we still at a time where people dressed for sporting events? I mean, 1970, I don't think so. Um, but, but just refresh my memory. Like, what were, were people, you know, jerseys weren't a big thing. There were hat days. There were bat days, the whole thing. But what was the dress for opening day in 1970? Do you remember? Well, that day I bundled up, I know, because it was just darn cold. And right. I remember we sat on the we sat on the third base, and it was raining, and sat on the third base side way up high in the fifth level of RFK Stadium. Um, so, But your point's correct. I, jerseys and so forth weren't a thing. It was more like bring a pennant if you had one. Um, I have a picture on the website of me and my dad at Super Bowl VII. Um, I didn't have one of the two of us at a, a Senators game, but he did take me to the – Redskins, Dolphins, Super Bowl Seven game. Wow. Uh, I saved up all my newspapers. I, I was delivering newspapers, the Washington Evening Star, um, and I saved my money. And in those days, the Super Bowl wasn't the thing it is today. There were scalpers outside getting two bucks a ticket. Um, but I bring that up because there's a picture on the website of the two of us at the Super Bowl, and he is wearing a coat and tie. I'm and not, I'm wearing a turtleneck and a jacket. <laughs> I just I, I just pulled it up. You've got a pair of sunglasses on as well. Um, as you sat in the oh, LA, in, as, as as you sat in the L.A. Coliseum that day. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, being that young, uh, so you were you know 12 years old at that point, and you're right. you're at the first ever Washington Redskins Super Bowl. Uh, and I certainly remember that day. That was a disappointing day. Yeah, Gero Yepremian, great quarterback for the Dolphins. Yeah, but your dad is dressed <laughs> up for that one. Was your dad more exactly. of a football That's... fan? Um, dad was a big event fan. I think he always felt you had to dress up to go to a big event, whether it was a football game or a baseball game or a presidential inaugural parade or, or whatever it may be. That was what 
floated his boat. And wow. yes, he dressed up. Um, so, uh, you know, again, so, so I'm just picturing, you know, RFK Stadium, and I can kind of vaguely remember what it looked like as a baseball stadium. In fact, you know, at the end of baseball stadium season back then, you know, the, the, uh, the baseball diamond would actually cross over the football field. We were, we were much more of a football family, and my father, um, you know, and my, uh, and my uncles took me to those games, you know, starting in the early 70s, really. Uh, but, you know, it, it, for whatever reason, I still have a memory like even with the Senators gone, the baseball diamond was still there as part of the field until <laughs> baseball was se- season was over and then they uh, would cover it up. And that was the case with a lot of, you know, multi-purpose stadiums um, throughout sports. Um, so before we move on to, uh, through the rest of your journey, what are some of the memories of those two games at RFK with the Senators? The weather was a lot better in 71 than it was in 70. Okay. <laughs> uh, it was a sunny, beautiful day. Vita Blue was starting that day for the Oakland oh, Athletics. Wow. Yeah. While it, was his break, it was his breakout season. Um, he started the All-Star game for the American League that year. He, he was terrific, but not on that opening day. The Senator shelled him. He was gone by the second or third inning, um, and Dick Bosman went the distance for the victory for, for the Senators. Uh, so uh, were, those were those would have been the Oakland A's 1971, just before they started their run. With Reg, was Reggie Jackson a, a part of that team? Was um, you know some of the great yeah, players like Bert Campanaris and and the uh, and Sal Bando and Catfish Hunter and all you know all all that were did, did they have the makings of a championship team in '71? I don't. I don't remember who was on the roster. That's why I put the link in the website for the box score so I go back and check. But okay. I know by the blue was a starting pitcher. I will also tell you that I know that Reggie Jackson's on the team. My dad's office was up above Rinaldi's Cleaners in northwest Washington, D.C., not a couple blocks from the White House. And one Saturday, dad took me down to Rinaldi's because the senators and would always send the uniforms to Rinaldi's, the home team and the away team, and they would get laundered and then brush them back over to the stadium for that night's game. Oh, wow. I went down one Saturday morning. I'm nine, ten years old, and Mr. Rinaldi let me try on Frank Howard's jersey and Reggie Jackson's jersey. <laughs> wow. And if you remember, the A's jerseys in those days, the road oh, jerseys were best. Th- and they were wild. So, they had they, they they had more uniforms than any team in sports. You know, they had green, they had gold, they had white, they had a, a ton of them. By the way, I just looked it up. That was the first year of. Oakland making uh, the playoffs, and then their run of, of winning World Series would start a few years later. That makes sense. Well, as I, if, if it weren't for the fact that it was a vest, you would never know I was in Reggie Jackson's shirt because I was, it was bigger than I was, but my arms got to stick out the side. Oh, wow. I, it was also very, much, very appreciated because the legendary Phil Wood, who collects everything, sure. baseball guru, has a 1969 Frank Howard jersey that he let me use to recreate that photo for myself. I don't have the Reggie piece, but I have the, the Frank Howard piece. And there's a picture on the website of me at the statue at Nats Park, kind of connecting the, the decades there for me. It was very, very nice to sell. All right, let's talk about uh, what came next. Obviously, the team moves, and now there are the Orioles. So I'm assuming that the next many years, you were at Memorial Stadium and then eventually Camden Yards. It, that's correct. I went um, the way I recall is, and I only can guess how it played out because I truly don't remember the details. The the opening day of '72 was delayed because of the first player strike. It was delayed a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. from which the players secured binding arbitration. Um, and, and it was moved because of the weather it was Sunday afternoon, which is odd. Opening day on a Sunday afternoon, and I'm guessing we got home from church, and Dad said, "Let's go to opening day." And I thought he was crazy. Like, what do you mean? Day? My team went to Texas, and I'm now a Texas Rangers fan, Dad. Oh, in Baltimore. So, Baltimore, where's that? <laughs> it was northwest Washington, D.C. Right. And we probably got out a map and figured out how to get there and went to opening day. It was a cold, miserable day, but I don't have any clear, vivid memories of that one. I had to do some online research to piece the details back together. But I do know that Bernie Allen of the Washington Senators was now with the Yankees, and he played in that game. Got it. Uh, so, yes, Baltimore for the next several years had a great time in 1977 because the Texas Rangers, who I was still cheering for, came to Baltimore to play the Orioles on opening day. Jim Palmer, Burt Blylevin, 10-inning 10 10 complete game. I make a banner 
that says, Go Senators. And I hang it off the Mezzanine Memorial Stadium, hoping that Toby Harrow might see it or something, right? Yeah. And it appears on the front page of the Evening Star the next day. Wow. There's my banner on the front page of the paper. Do you have that? Did somebody that take fun. a picture of that? Did you have that? On the website. I oh. put that up there. It's just uh, the, 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 the clip from the paper right under David Israel's column on Jim Palmer. Oh, wow. We put that in there, too. So then off to college. So now off you're, now you're off to Dame. college. Okay, you, you, went to, you went to Notre Dame. Okay. And you're coming back for opening day. No, actually, I figured it's over. I'm off in college. There's no baseball team with 100 miles of me, except I meet a guy named Craig Chabal. And he says he likes the White Sox. They stink, too, just as much as the Washington Senators. And I said, well, um, and he had a car. So that's what he had a team. He had a car. Let's go. So we went to Comiskey Park. And it was coincidentally, Phil Wood had to remind me of this, it was the 60th anniversary of the Black Sox scandal. And we went uh, that year, 1979, and they played the expansion Toronto Blue Jays. And they were so dreadful that Bill Vec apologized to the fans and said the White Sox were dreadful, that if they come back the next day, they can come for free. <laughs> it was that bad a game. <laughs> so uh, what about the Cubs instead? So when Harry Carey, who I idolized, I was like, well, Comiskey was a totally different experience than Memorial Stadium or RFK. Right. In part, in large part, because Harry Carey was hanging out of the press box with a beer in one hand and a microphone in the other, saying, take me out to the ballgame. And Nancy Faust on the origin, it was great, great atmosphere. I loved it. When Harry defected from the south side to the north side in 1982, I said, Craig, let's go. We'll follow Harry. And he said, I'm not going to Wrigley Field. I'm a White Sox fan. I can't go to the Cubs game. <laughs> so I found another friend who was a Cubs fan, and off we went to Wrigley Field to, to, for Carey's, for Harry's debut at, at the Wrigley in 82. Oh, wow. Um, did you? I, I'm assuming that as a baseball opening day 50-year run guy, you've been to a lot of parks. You know, the book is about opening day, but the, you've been to a lot of baseball games and a lot of parks during your life. I, I have in my life, not for opening day. For opening day, I've only been to six parks, but I have been up and down the East Coast. I've been to a lot of ballparks, yes. Um, so where does Wrigley rank for you? Wrigley back then, not, not great, as I recall. It was iconic, um, the IV and so forth, but it was so cold and miserable. You want to do the opening days usually in cold weather cities aren't the nicest of, of weather days as, as we know. I mean, I, I can remember the Orioles. Um, in fact, I want to say, well, no, that they, they played the World Series games against the Pirates. There was a snow game. But I think also an opening day, maybe in 78 or 79, because I went to one of those at, at Memorial Stadium, uh, the snow was falling uh, as well. So th- those those things happening on, happen on opening day in cold weather cities in early April. Um, but so take me through Chicago and now – now you, you, you move back where? Like, where, where are you living as you're continuing this as an adult, you know, after back college? Washington, D.C. Okay. I had the privilege of, after college, working for the infamous Charlie Brotman, the infamous sports PR guy and opening day announcer of, the, of, of baseball in Washington. Uh, a, a legend, uh, legendary uh, Charlie Brotman, one of my all-time uh, favorite people. Absolutely. Yes. And, in fact, I spend all of Chapter 1983 talking about Charlie. Um, and I sent him his copy this week, and I had to highlight in the book exactly how often his name is in there. Just <laughs> exactly what you have to do, right. Charlie. So I was working for Charlie. Charlie went to opening day. He gave me the afternoon off so I could take my dad. Now I'm driving, and I'm taking my dad to opening day um, to watch the Orioles and um, reconnect. The following year, I had the opportunity to go leave Charlie and work for a startup cable TV channel that we remember called Home Team Sports. Right. That had that had the Orioles games at the time. Was Mel and, Proctor uh, calling the games early on? Who, who was calling the games from the start? Mel Proctor was on play-by-play, and Rex Barney was doing the color. Yeah. And later, John Lowenstein retired from playing and went straight into the booth. And Proctor and Lowenstein was just a combination that was terrific. Um, so now I'm working for Huntington Sports. I am now an Oriole fan. I'm all in. <laughs> Goodbye, White Sox. In fact, when I went to the ALCS, I guess it was, when the White Sox played the Orioles in 83... Orioles eventually won the World Series. Right. I'm, I'm all in for the White Sox at that series. <laughs> so when I could say that when when the Nationals won the World Series in 2019, I could truly say it was the first time my team 
won the World Series. Yeah, so, you, so even though you were uh, at that age where the Senators were gone and a lot of people, and I would bet a lot of your friends because a lot of my friends did, and I didn't, um, but most of my friends became Orioles fans pretty quickly. And even though I went to a lot of baseball games at Memorial Stadium and then eventually Camden Yards, um, including you know some playoff games and World Series games, uh, I was never an Orioles fan. I always wanted our uh, you know a team back in D.C. And it sounds to me like you felt the same way. Um, I love the Texas Rangers. I followed them down. There. That's interesting. I did. I, I I didn't. And I. But then again, I th- I'm I'm younger than you are because you remember some of those those games. I mean, for me, the first year I remember is really the year in which the Senators moved. You know, their last year here. Well, I, I followed the Rangers for as long as I could, but then they started trickling away. It was like a death by a thousand cuts. Dick Bosman would go to Cleveland, and Frank Howard would go to Detroit, and one by one it was just kind of falling apart. And then I got the White Sox, so that kind of filled the void for me. But when you know the Orioles started, quote-unquote, contributing to my paycheck, and I was a newlywed, it was easy to start liking the Orioles. That's when I really got interested in the Orioles. Um, and it was an interesting opening day, because in 1984, that week, we're putting home team sports on the air, the Orioles are hoisting their 1983 World Series championship banner, and it was only five days after the Baltimore Colts left town. Wow. Yeah. So Baltimore is now going through what I had gone through years before. They lost their team. And I could really empathize with them. And We had a challenging situation at home team sports. We are supposed to go on the air next week. And the set has this photo collage in the background and the HTS with all the pictures. And the top of the T was this picture of the Baltimore Colts offensive line, picture of helmets. <laughs> and the program director comes to my desk, because I'm the guy with the pictures, and says, you got to fix this. you got to fix it right away. That can't be up there next week when we go on the air. So we swapped it out for a Redskin picture, and, and no one ever knew. But um, that was a weird, weird weird opening day in 1984 because of what the city was going through in Baltimore. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um so how many presidents, because you had all those opening days in Baltimore, you had the two in Washington, so we know Nixon showed up at one of them, but not until the fifth inning. How many presidents at Memorial Stadium and Camden Yards? Do you have them added up in your I head? Saw, over the next 30 years, I saw five different presidents throughout the first pitch nine times. And then uh, I also saw Gerald Ford throughout the first pitch at the All-Star Game in 76. Okay. He was a ambidextrous president. He threw right-handed and left-handed. Well, he was an athlete, right? Wasn't he a, a college football he player? Football, football. Yeah. yeah. But but in terms of opening day, uh, Ronald Reagan kind of resurrected the, the tradition um, because it had been gone for a while. In 1984, he came to Baltimore and did it again in 86. Um, and then George H.W. Bush, as legend has it, had his glove in his desk at the in the Oval Office on opening day, ready to go, all oiled up. And he did it at, at Oriole Park. I'm sorry, at Memorial Stadium once and at Camden Yards once. And then Bill Clinton, who John Stedman of the Baltimore Sun once said, he throws like he grew up playing the saxophone, <laughs> which is true. <laughs> but I got to give it. I got to give Bill Clinton some. He, had, he certainly didn't have the baseball pedigree of Ronald Reagan or George H.W. Bush or George W. Bush. Right. But the courage it took to go out there, and he was the first president to put on the home team garb, the hat, and the royal jacket, and go out there and the first pitch, he also didn't come by chauffeur. He came on commuter rail, and two years later, he came on Marine One. So he kind of changed it up a bit and and made it better for his successors. George W. Bush saw him throughout the first pitch, of course, the first Nationals game in 05, and he christened Nationals Park in 08. And then Barack Obama, to his credit, knew that he wasn't much of a baseball guy or in a White Sox hat on at Nationals Park, which was offensive, but he at least you know wanted to keep the tradition going, and so he did it in 2010, which was the 100th anniversary of William Howard Taft doing it for the first time in 1910, so yeah. that's the continuum of presidents I saw throughout the first pitch. And Taft did it at Griffith, at Griffith Stadium? He certainly did. Yeah. Um, you, 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 you said five different presidents nine times, but it sounds like you saw more than five presidents, or am I not doing the math correctly? You saw Reagan. You saw Reagan. You saw Nixon. Reagan. You saw Clinton. You saw uh, Bush. Both Bushes, right? I didn't see. I, yeah, but I didn't see Nixon throw a first pitch because he showed up. Late. Oh, right, right, right. Because he didn't. Okay, got it. Yep. But you, but you saw him. On, but, you, but, but you saw him on opening day. Got okay. it. Now, what about Carter in Reagan. Baltimore? 
Carter never Carter did it never did it on opening day. He did it in game uh, during the World Series. Got it. In fact, famously, he came up and they won the game. And <laughs> and Rick Dempsey says to America's most famous Sunday school teacher, you know, next time get your ass up here sooner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a pretty pretty funny moment on national TV with Jimmy Carter. But that um, yeah, I never saw Jimmy Carter throw the first pitch. He got lots of kudos during his first pitch ceremonies during the 1996-95 World Series in Atlanta. He went out there and threw some heat for an old guy. He was looking really good. Well, you know, I, my, my recollection is that, you know, we, he was he was a bit of a sports fan. He showed up um, for uh, a Bullets NBA uh, Game 7 against the Hawks in 1979. And I remember because I was at that game and trying to get into the Capitol Center in Landover for that game because of the security was one of the worst things I've, I've, I can ever remember. And everybody's like, what's going on here? And and Carter was at the, that game. Carter went to a couple of of, uh, of Redskin games, too. He went to a Redskin-Cowboys Monday night game. Um, but you're saying mm-hmm. he never threw out uh, an opening pitch. So what about... So, well, we didn't have... We didn't, we didn't have he, he was only in the White House from 76 to 80. Yeah, that's right. Baseball in Washington. Right. It was Reagan who really said, let's go to Baltimore and do it. Got it. Yeah, got it. Um, I, I just thought maybe Carter went to Memorial Stadium to, to, to do it. Nope. So you started with your father uh, at RFK Stadium and then in Baltimore at Memorial Stadium. Um do you have kids, and if so, did you continue the tradition with them, and when? We have six kids. Oh, my God. And I have eight grandkids. Wow. And I have eight grandchildren. So all of them did their time at one time or another with baseball's dad or granddaddy. Um, so, And I'm, in my Cal Ripken chapter, which is 1993, I, I do talk about each of my four sons had very specific encounters with Cal. Ripken, and, and, and I thought that brought the chapter to life, not just his great career as a player, but but um, how he was part of the community and how he, each of our kids kind of connected with him in different ways. Um, so, but, uh, yeah, so I took my three baseball-loving sons, all got to go. Brad, who's now just turned 37 yesterday, he was at the last game at Memorial Stadium with me, which is a wonderful closing of the stadium before they opened Camden Yards. Uh, Patrick was with me at Cal Ripken's 21-31. Great memory. Yeah. Uh, Daniel, not much of a baseball fan, got to present Cal Ripken with a Lifetime Achievement Award uh, for the Arthritis Foundation. And Greg is the one who bleeds orange to this day. I have a wonderful set of pictures in the basement of Greg and I at Oriole Games, 17 years apart, but wow. sitting in the same seats. <laughs> Just uh, really terrific. But yeah. That's great. Uh, um, so yeah, they've all got to go. So of the 50 games, what was mm-hmm. the best game? The best game. Yeah. Does that does it even matter? And in, in the ch- because the way it looks like you've written this book, you've written each chapter is each one of those you know games. So there, I'm assuming there are 50 chapters in the book. There's 50 chapters, but there's one page on the game, and then the rest of the chapter is on a story. This is really more of a storybook than a baseball play-by-play book. Okay. Um, the best game, though, I think without a doubt, has got to be 2008 when Mr. Walkoff hits the bottom of the ninth home run to win the game for the Nationals. Yeah, right. Ryan Zimmerman. I mean, yeah. that just had to, that was, there were other walk-off wins. Um, heck, in 75, Tony Canigliaro attempting his second comeback hits a home run for the Boston Red Sox. And then the 12th inning, Carl Yastrzemski hits what turns out to be the game winner, but it was in Baltimore. It wasn't a walk-off. But you know, those are some memorable things that happened on on opening day in the game, but to stress the book is less about the games and more about the stories and telling a bit about not just my personal journey, which ties it all together, but baseball history over the last fifty years. Yeah, uh, can I, I just pull? I just pulled up the, your your um, your website here, and and you link very nicely to the actual baseballreference.com. Uh, box scores mm-hmm. uh, of those games, and that that game that you just referenced, the uh, the seventy five game, was a twelve inning game, uh, which the Red Sox won mm-hmm. uh, in the top of the twelfth over um, over the Orioles. So, what else? What are people going to love about this book? I mean, I think sports fans will love it, but it sounds like the stories that go with it. You don't even have to necessarily be a baseball guy. Um, what are people going to love about the book? What's your favorite well, as, part as of the book? Com- 
uh, as Forrest Gump would have said, it's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. You keep jumping, you keep jumping around, and some of them are just goofy personal things about the racing presidents or the orange carpet in Baltimore or thank God I'm a country boy or how I got tickets or my son's peanut allergy to really heavy baseball stuff like strikes and lockouts that impacted the scheduling of opening day and the players that contributed to that journey along the way. Sonia Sotomayor, who's ruling in 1995, got, got the players back on the field after that long, painful strike. Um, so the, 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 we're really all over the place, Kevin. Don't, there are some that are just very emotional and powerful. Um, the return of baseball in 2005 is just a tearjerker for me personally. Um, the loss of Harry Callis on opening day in 2009 was just a really powerful story. And then the following year, I hooked up with my high school buddy, John McNamara, on opening day. Oh, wow. Yeah. And as some of your listeners will know, John McNamara sure. was one of the victims of the Minneapolis Gazette yep. shooting. And, and there's a lot of... John and I met in 1975 in high school. It turned out his widow, Andrea, gave me his ticket stub from the last Senators game. And he was sitting four sections away from me that night with his dad. And so the journey of connective tissue from... 71 all the way up to when he was killed in 2018. And as some fans know, it was in the Washington Post, I'm not talking out of school here, his ashes are in the flower box in left field at Nats Park. Right. Um, it, those are the kind of stories that I can't, I can't do them justice here on the podcast. You just have to read and understand the whole context that, that, that helped make these stories special. Yeah, um, I've got John's. Uh, I've got John's book, and I, I reference it. You know, on on on, on the this city's uh, basketball um, prowess uh, many times. Um, well, it sounds like a phenomenal book. Uh, I wish you the best of luck with it. I, I'm assuming that people can get it wherever they get a book. Um, you, you, you will. You, you you will be able to. Right now, Amazon's not quite there yet, so okay. I steer people to Barnes & Noble. If they're anxious to get it now, barnesandnoble.com. We became a Barnes & Noble bestseller on Monday, our first day out of the gate. Oh, so that's I'm awesome. Really excited about that. And, well, and when you see people like Ken Rosenthal tweeting about the book, you know that we're on to something. So the, the excitement of the week is... Beyond well, I mean, Phil Wood's got nice things to say. Tim Kirchin has nice things to say about the book. So you've gotten a, a lot of, of endorsements from some heavy hitters uh, in, in the sport. It's called Opening Day 50 for 50, One Fan, One Game, A Half Century of Baseball Stories, written by Michael Ortman. Um, again, barnesandnoble.com right now. Michael, thank you so much. Uh, really good luck with the book. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. All right, that's it. Thanks to Michael uh, for sharing some of those stories. Back tomorrow. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.